Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and we are diving into a study of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today we are in part three of a chapter called More About Alcoholism, and we'll be on page 39 today. And what we've talked about so far in this chapter is really good, you know. More About Alcoholism really introduces us to the ideas that our behavior is outside of our control once we start to drink that the most trivial excuse can talk us back into it, and that any lurking notion that somewhere in the future we'll be able to drink again, that there's some period of time, there's some spiritual achievement, some quantity of self-knowledge, some mastery of a self-help technique, any of that, you know, that if we believe that we'll be able to drink like normal people, if only blank, we are in a perilous perilous, dangerous place. I've introduced you to the idea that 1% of desire to use again, to drink again, will inevitably overcome 99% commitment. And it won't matter if you've got 15 years of sobriety. If you let that idea lurk in your mind, you are doomed. It's important to vocalize that to your sponsor and your group and to talk about it and to get the power out of that idea. Because to drink for us is to die. And we've discovered this over all the chapters up to now, that we have a progressive illness that is characterized by an allergy that when we take the first drink, a phenomenon called craving starts, which turns into an obsession. And we find ourselves doing this to a point of incomprehensible demoralization. So we ended with this story of a jaywalker, right? Who keeps getting hit by cars to the point that he finally gets killed. You know, he loses everything and it just sounds ridiculous. And if we were to put in the place of jaywalking alcoholism, that that stupid story becomes the stupid story about Dan Dan, you know, and the things I did. And when I think about it that way, it's so true, you know, it's so true that I did a lot of things that way. This relates to me exactly as the book tells me. And It was trying to walk me to the idea or the book, or I think Bill's intention was that I am that crazy. And he uses the word insane in a few different contexts as we go through all of that, from stupid to thoughtless to severely mentally ill. And when I think about those contexts of the word insane, and remember, he said, notwithstanding its actual definition. So if you're like Googling it right now or something, that might not be what it says. In context or in reference to this material, that is what he's getting at. And wow, you know, I was all those things. And so it's important for me as we go on, we're going to go through one more story today on page 39. And we start with the words, this may be true of certain non-alcoholic people. And I'm going to go a little bit back from that uh, to just revisit the last piece so that we can set the stage for this next story. So I am repeating myself from the previous part, but just bear with me. Here we go. Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Keep that idea in mind as we move forward. 
That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. Because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly any exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. Keep that in mind. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize, to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. So here we go with another story, and this is the last story of the chapter, and this will finish it up. It says, Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearances, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet, he is an alcoholic. See, he's not a bad character. There's nothing wrong with his moral compass. But he's a drinker, so let's see what happens. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly, which means to suggest strongly, that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so, in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back, nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. So this is what Fred said. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard a work of a simple matter. There is that lurking idea.
right there. I really don't need all this, right? I don't got to go to meetings. I get what they're saying. I've got a big book. Heck, I've made a lot of friends. I'll keep hanging out with them, right? One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell. So there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. You guys see what's coming, right? You can see what's coming. A lot of people that know us as alcoholics associate the risk for relapse with trouble in our lives. Someone dies, something bad happens. Who knows, but it's connected to calamity that we are unable to deal with difficult things and so we'll drink. And that turns out to be, of course, a risk. But there's this other risk and part of the subtle insanity that a perfect day, a day that has gone off exactly as you want it to, can be that time that that same lurking notion, that idea that I can drink like normal men, finds its way into your mind. You ready? He said it's the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Wow. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. Here it is. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. Isn't that exactly like the other guy? As I sat there finishing my lunch, the thought came to mind that I would be fine if I put the scotch in my milk. That's the series of events in the thought. For me, I had a relapse at nine months and I thought, heck, I've never tried Maple Crown Royal, right? That's what went through my mind. And I'd forgotten totally about being in recovery or the program or the consequences. And I was about halfway through a handle before any of that came back to me. Very, very similar experience that I had. So he says, as I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner, everything's great. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind, not the urgence, not the consequences, not the people, not any of these things. It wasn't outside of him. It was inside of him. The temptation did not come from the store or the liquor store or friend. The temptation came from inside. The thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all. Nothing more. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, right? I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered, well, another cocktail, of course. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with the unbearable mental and physical suffering. And I think today, you know, they're a lot less likely to take us to a hospital when they encounter us today, right? The, the interventionist today is handcuffs, right? The professional guy of intervention doesn't care about my perfect day. He's unconcerned with the fact that I've had trouble in my life or any of that. Those handcuffs are cold and he's going to do his job as he should. 
As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. Hmm. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Think about that. The spiritual solution is so important or you're at risk of this. Talk about insane or or thinking you're going crazy. This is what you're up against. Well, just that did happen, Fred tells us, and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. So if you make commitments about drinking, if you've sworn off, if you've looked your spouse dead in the eyes and said, I will never do this to you again, if you've looked at your children and realized the pain that you've caused them, if you've lost jobs or been arrested and said, this has got to stop, I'm not doing this anymore, this is crazy, and you did it again, and your story matches a little bit of this, just a little bit of it, maybe you have this sentence in common with Fred, that he knew. This is what he said. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. There's that idea again. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was the crushing blow. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much and then asked me if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. In other words, they thought he was an alcoholic. (laughs) They wanted to know if he thought he was an alcoholic. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Take that to heart if you're new. The steps are what they are and they say what they do. But you don't have to believe anything. He didn't say that he believed it. Fred's not sitting here telling us that you got to come to some, you know, idea, some deep place in order to do this. What he said was he made up his mind. The moment I made up my mind to go through with the process. Can you make that determination right now? Can all of us do that? No matter how long we've been in the program, can we remind ourselves, can we make up our mind to go through with the process? 
And it says that the moment he did, he had the curious feeling that his alcoholic condition was relieved. Think about that. It's a commitment to this process that will relieve the alcoholic condition. He goes on to say, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Ooh. Uh, really? Really, Dan Dan? You think so? You, you don't know my legal problems, man. You, you have no idea how bad off it is with my parents. You have no idea. My kids hate me. I'll never get a job in that field again. All those kind of things. Yes, I personally have that story as well. That spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Fred goes on. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and, I hope, more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Wow, that's what's out there for us. It's a fantastic way of life. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled. <laughs> Don't you hate that? Have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Take that to mind. We've been breaking people that love us hearts. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. This, this chapter finishes right here, and I want us to focus in on this one paragraph. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few cases, neither he any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. A lot of us don't like that idea, and especially coming into AA, we may have prejudice or concepts of the higher power idea that precede our arrival here. Bad church experiences, good church experiences, devout faith, no, no idea of faith, no you know, notion of it. All sorts of them are coming to bear. And as we move out of this chapter, as we move out of the chapter more about alcoholism and into the next one, it's going to be important that we have this discussion first. Am I truly powerless over alcohol? Have I made perhaps hundreds of commitments that I continue to break? Do I find myself in moral positions such as jails and counseling and being fired, you know, unemployment lines and things like this? that I swore I would never be a part of? Am I living a life drastically different than the life I picture for myself? And if so, talk about it. And if you've been in the program for a while, a great place to talk about here, a great thing to bring into the room 
is that old what it used to be like and what it's like now. Because this is the turning point. We stand at it right now. Are we going to do this or not? The two stories we've read about Jim and Fred kind of give us the idea that there's something in us, a curious mental blank spot where we are at significant risk of relapse and that the thinking of relapse is what characterizes the alcoholic mind. Do you have an alcoholic mind? Let's talk about it. So if you're sitting there with your sponsor, or if you're in a meeting right now discussing this content, or you're just driving along, think about it. Think about how you have repeatedly failed to be successful in controlling your drinking, that you've quit over and over again, but you can't stay quit. I hope you guys have a great discussion.